questions. We are conscious that we have um, opened many a can of worms and, <laughs> and not uh, all of this may be and will be satisfactorily uh, answered. I'm also conscious there were questions on notes that were, uh, certainly I have not managed to respond to either because of the scope of the question or uh, sometimes I simply don't know. On, on, on a few really bad cases, I didn't uh, manage to decipher the writing. So this is a chance to maybe <coughs> make amends for this. And if, uh, We prefer questions that have something to do with, you know, practice and some of the things we were teaching about this last week. I know there are many fascinating questions out there that uh, could be pursued. Um, I guess you get my gist. Yeah. So, floor is open. Do we have a microphone? <coughs> Would you be able to hand it? Would you be able to take it out? I think it works. <laughs> yeah? so. uh, Dana, I believe. Here? Yeah? Dana. Did you see somebody else? Ooh. Okay, hi. <laughs> I think... Um, uh, it's likely that my one of my questions to you, which was one of the handwriting you couldn't decipher. Um, so I'm going to ask it now. Um, and I have two sort of interrelated questions, comments. Um, I've had MS for 35 years. Um, I've been on a few retreats. And what I discover is that, very simply, low reactivity equals low symptomatology. Um, many of my sensory symptoms dissipate. I sleep very little. Um, I need very little sleep here. But um, anyway, um, so that's one thing I notice, which is it's absolutely mind-blowing for me. Um, mm. The other question I had related to something you said um, at, the la I think, the last um, Dharma talk you gave, you were talking about um, the sense of balance which develops in children at, at very first thing that develops in kids. And I wonder what, what the effect is on adult development for someone who um, loses their sense of balance from illness or injury. Head injuries can do that. Illnesses like MS can do that. Or even for young children like with CP. Um, and so I'm wondering about I'm wondering about what it means when the sense of physical balance isn't there and how that relates to the balance inside your heart. Um, mm -hmm. it's, it's a big question, um, yeah. but it's, it's just, it's, it so struck me as relevant. I guess I'd have to just tell you that I'm ignorant, you know, on I, how, I don't know how I could know. Um, the, what I refer to is a simple, is a well-documented de developmental process that the, our senses don't always, uh, don't begin at the same time. And it seems to be that our vestibulary sense system uh, orientation in space, balance, so forth, is one is the earliest one to develop, uh, if I remember my embryology right. Um, I would expect that if that sense is impaired, that you you will develop compensatory strategies. Yeah, and I don't think that sense uh, is completely there or completely gone. Yeah. I, I just know when 
with sleepiness, it's particularly obvious. That sense is waning as the first of the, f of the senses that falls asleep. You know, we all fall asleep with the sense of balance first and, and the sense of hearing last. Yeah. That's why meditators tend to rock when they're sleepy and still hear the bell, even though they may be considerably <laughs> gone. Yeah. So I would expect that if that sense, either the development is, is, is retarded or in some way uh, compromised, and if an illness or an accident brings an impairment of that sense that there will be the brain generally has some coping strategies and tries to use other senses or tries to uh, relegate those areas that are uh, injured or impaired to other parts of the brain but i this is purely hypothetical you know i i don't actually know this from personal experience i am also not uh, expert enough. I'm sure there's studies out there who uh, out look at the coping strategies of the brain with an impaired sense of balance. I personally have a feeling you have probably made up, you know, with other senses for that. That is, that would be my, mm -hmm. you know, like if people, I had a friend who had a tremendously impaired visual capacity and we we did many things together and um, technically you could see about 10 percent you know he had a very exacerbated nystagmus so it means his eyes were always r flickering but i noticed when we walked at the in in the dark he was a lot better than i huh. because he he consistently trade his peripheral vision you know, due to his inability to focus, he was really good at using his peripheral vision. And at night, when it's really pitch black and you don't have anything to focus on, he was a lot better off than I. Yeah. So I would expect something of that sort to take place with the sense of uh, balance as well. And thank you for sharing that first point. Yeah, I'm very... That the low reactivity is low symptomatology. It's amazing. It's mind-blowing for me. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. I believe there is a lady at the back in the chair. Hi, um, this is a, possibly a variation of a little note that I left for you. Um, I was uh, a little confused about especially the last, um, uh, the last mindfulness of dhammas, the the, I guess, what, um, Akinshino, what you talked about, the channel four with the, uh, our mental verbalizations, uh, the cognitive content of our thoughts, if that makes any sense. And, uh, and then Jaya, you were talking about, among other things, the five hindrances being part of the, uh, that mindfulness of dhammas. So I'm just trying to figure out how do and how do they work together? Uh, and then also, I think the chit mindfulness of chitta chitta was heart and mind. So I didn't know did the thoughts all go into dhammas and not in chitta, and how did the hindrances and thoughts go together? So tiny little question. Just <laughs> tiny little question, yeah. <laughs> okay, let me give it a bash. The Channel three chitta inevitably is going to comprise some thoughts. Yeah, this is not the major activity in there, but there will be thoughts that will always be concomitant to emotional processes. Yeah. So <coughs> the complexity of the dimension of the chitta dimension uh, has it that you know you have cognitive functions of mind. So will, intention, volition will be part in there, anything to do with an impulse, anything that moves in a direction. Yeah. Intentionality is something that has to do with anything in your mind that directs something or that de determines something. So that's, a, that's the strongest component in there. Then there is the affective color, yeah. so the mood quality, and usually moods come with thoughts. Yeah. <laughs> moods are the, th the 
the basically the soil out of which cognitive functions emerge, discursive activity emerges. Yeah. So think of channel three as a a mixed a mixture of things. The major components are affective and conative, so intentional, volitional, and emotional. But you will have some thoughts mixed in there. Now, channel four um, is not so much about thought content or mind content, it is about mind objects. Yeah. So the, the term Dhamma in there, and I think Chaya has said some very clear things on this, I may try to recall. The term Dhamma in this Channel 4 has two different meanings. The one meaning is basically something like phenomena. Anything that is appearing as a phenomena, as an object in your mind, any concept, any thought, any image, any r memory, any conception of sort is part of such phenomena. Yeah? This is Dhamma with a long A at the end, plural. So that's one meaning. The second meaning of the term Dhamma is uh, completely untranslatable. It refers to a category of uh, reality as Buddhist teaching thinks they are important to consider. So these are two specific categories referring to dimensions of Buddhist teaching. So you have the sense spheres, the ayatanas, you have the khandhas, the five aspects of experience, and you have the nivaranas, the hindrances, and you have the bojangas, the awakening factors. So these are categories which are particularly uh, useful to contemplate if you're interested in awakening. Some of them are obstacles like the hindrances and some of them are particularly salubrious like the bojangas, the awakening factors. So think of these two meanings. One meaning basically means dhammas as phenomena, anything that turns up as an event and as an object in my experience is a dhamma and a phenomenon of channel four. And amidst these phenomena you have patterns and categories of experience which are particularly useful to contemplate, to wake up. Those would then be the lists of the hindrances, the list of the awakening factors, the sense organs, the five aspects of um, experience in, as in the khandhas. And in one, uh, probably a later version of the Satipatthana Sutta, you even have the Four Noble Truths in there. Yeah. Does that make sense? In all brevity. <laughs> Good. I'm glad to uh, leave you with a cliffhanger. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, please. In my practice, I noticed that uh, it's easier to stay with the body sensation cha um, changes with awareness. But it's different experience when it comes to awareness of thinking. Um, of all the times, if I try to set the awareness on thinking course, it's either I was aware of before the rising of a thinking, or the awareness would catch the tail of a thought. It's almost like the two cannot coexist. It's like either the light is switched on or off. Um, so oftentimes, until some level of emotion is stirred up, 
then I would be able to, or the, the inside timer would go off to say, oh, some thinking is triggering something. But mainly based on the feedback from the body. So um, my curiosity is forget about coexist the awareness and thinking. Um, rely just rely on the body itself. Um, but I I found it's very interesting. Um, the awareness of the body can be verballess. Oh, is that the word? But the awareness when it comes to thinking also becomes verbal. Meaning two voices talking to each other. Um, so I don't know what the teachers can say something about that. Uh, I'll thank you for that. I'll try and uh, respond. So I'm actually... Uh, it strikes me that actually what you're describing already reflects a quite high degree of mindfulness, just that you're noticing this difference in the experience of trying to be aware of thoughts and trying to be aware of the body and actually seeing how on some level... Uh, thinking and awareness kind of can't coexist. And I, I think that what you're describing is that time of being lost inside the content of the thought, which is precisely where awareness has disappeared. And we're no longer aware of thinking as a process, but we're just inside the thought and the thought has become our reality. But you, you describe very well the moments of kind of catching sometimes when we're still, we can catch the arising of a thought and then how we, we become aware again, maybe if some emotion has been triggered, we realize we're thinking and then we can, we, we can drop it, we can see the ending of it. So I, I would not abandon the attempt to be mindful of your thinking or to be mindful of thoughts, but really to just take an interest in the, the phenomenon of thinking you know, especially uh, the way that it arises and the way that it passes. This is where we're going to see it in the beginning. And actually, as, as we become more aware of the arisings of thought, we te they tend not to uh, take on so much momentum. So we, we may actually not have such a train of thought unless we've chosen, actually, this is the thought that I intend to think. There's less intentional, ch unintentional chit-chat uh, that goes on in the mind. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm interested in the sense that uh, you can be when you're mindful of what's happening in the body this can be a kind of wordless awareness but awareness of thinking is a, is a there's a verbal nature to the noticing of that and I just wonder if you have more attention just on the experience of thinking that actually in some ways that becomes also also slightly wordless, you know, that it's the analysis of it that gets wordy, that becomes verbal. But actually watching the experience, it's, almost, it's very difficult to describe, actually, uh, the experience of, of a thought. And I think we, each of us, we experience thinking in slightly different ways. Some of us will have much more um, kind of pictorial type of thinking, and for some of us it's very verbal. Uh, so, just to be to continue to be interested in that, and uh, not think that this is bad practice, <laughs> you know, when it when it takes over, and to be interested in the the spaces also between the thinking. Could Do you want could to I add, just add something? something on that? Because mm. I I really appreciated the the sort of care with which you were describing it, which seemed to speak for having brought a curiosity to this, a real curiosity. And it's something to experiment with. And sometimes it's easier to have a sense, well, I'm going to maintain awareness in, say, the sit bones. I mean, even right now, you know, feeling your sit bones, feeling the contact with the floor, 
And can awareness of sit bones coexist with a thought? So, so it's not some sort of disembodied awareness that I'm trying to bring to the thinking, but it's more like what I'm trying to, to do is to practice mindfulness of some anchor in the body, some grounding anchor in the body, and then deliberately bring up a thought. And, and almost do it like an experiment where you say, oh, can I feel the sit bones and bring up a thought or a mental image? D- does that make sense? J- just, just to play with that. Because we can often find that um, the Mindfulness in Schools project talk about thoughts as being a bit like buses because they come along and want to take us for a ride. You know? And uh, sometimes I can have a, a sense, well, I've got to get rid of the thoughts. But actually, we can notice, oh, the sit bones are on the pavement still. And the thought can be there. And the doors of the bus are open, and the bus conductor is saying, you know, come on again, take the ride again. But actually, there can be a sense of, oh, no, I'm staying with the sit bones, thanks. Does, does that make sense? Or the, the, the heels on the floor. And, you know, just to, to do this as a sort of embodied experiment where the, the, we're taking the attention to an anchor rather than to the activation that the thought may bring. It's such an such a important inquiry, this, um, for each of us. Yes, um, because of the curiosity, um, like when I watch the sensations of body um, changes, whether it's heat or, mm-hmm. or throbbing pain, mm. I'm able to witness the whole course. Yet when I try to witness the whole course of thinking, mm. it stops it. <laughs> Right. It doesn't allow me, well, which may be a okay. good thing, but it doesn't okay. allow me to see the development of mm. that thought. It could be in segments, mm-hmm. but yeah. it, it's not the original. Yeah. But it, that may be a good thing. <laughs> well, it's, it's potentially really helpful knowledge, that, isn't it? That actually I can ground awareness in the body and the thought quietens but something to play with, something to continue to experiment with. Thank you. Thank you for the teachings this week. And my question is about teaching. I find when I get on a particular bus, it's about teaching. Rearticulating what you just said to myself in a different way to, to deepen my learning or planning an entire new six-week course on the Brahma Viharas. Uh, so my question is kind of this meta question about teaching. I, I love having the experience, but also watching how you teach us and appreciating that. I'm wondering if you can pull back the curtains a bit, maybe for, for each of you, how you, you balance living in the moment with the teaching, um, particularly in, in guided meditations, how much of that is a set piece versus extemporaneous, and how you see kind of embodying and living the, the teachings from, from the middle. Another big question, yeah, <laughs> and really important one. In, in the actual moment of teaching, it does feel so helpful to practice, you know, what the Buddha's described as mindfulness internally and externally. So easy as a teacher or a therapist or anybody relating to anyone to lose that internal connection. And there's something, just speaking very personally, about the grounding in the lower half of the body that seems conducive to staying somewhat connected in the moment of relating or teaching. You know? uh, it's almost like there's an embodied equanimity. You know, equanimity is an embodied practice. It's about where do I take attention in the body? Can I give 
at least a portion of attention to a, a sense of ground, a sense of present moment sensation in contact with chair, with floor. You know. And that, in turn, can support uh, really letting one's own experience be the script for guided practice, say, you know, in, in, a, in a mindfulness class. Because sometimes one's think, you know, what is it that John Kabat-Zinn says at this point? You know, or, or what is it that, you know, page 34 of the manual in NBCT says I should be saying now? You know, and, you know, there's, there's a phrase in the Book of Common Prayer, uh, 1662, in, uh, which was a beautiful and eloquent prayer book, which talks about read, mark, learn and inwardly digest what you're studying, what you're, you know, the scriptures, you know. And I think there's something about that with these um, practices and the scripts for them and all the, the teacher training we may have received that we have really to digest it, really to, to dwell on it, digest it, and then in the moment of guiding, let our own experience be the script. So that one's listening to the body and letting it point to what might need to be said right now. <laughs> Does that make sense? You know, so that we're really doing the practice while we're guiding it and we're letting our own lived experience in the moment give rise to what we say. And that seems to have a to, to be supportive of a quality of presence, and also sometimes surprises. You know, one finds oneself saying things that, oh, well, that's a bit surprising. That wasn't quite planned. Uh, but often it can feel, you know, okay, this was a real present moment experience. Does, does that speak at least to a, a dimension of what you're talking about? But do, you, do you want to say something? Yeah, so, um, yeah, I, ag so I, I agree very much with Chris about this, this, the usefulness of this sense of having 50% uh, of the awareness with the, what's happening internally and 50% externally. And uh, just the, the sense of groundedness, like I noticed for me, there's, I, I like to, to teach or to guide a meditation from sitting on the floor because that's where I feel most steady. And, and oftentimes in teaching situations, we don't necessarily have control over these things. So it gives us a chance to really uh, see the difference. And then perhaps we have to be more intentional about, uh, say, the, the intention to ground and to stay connected in the body. And I think um, having kind of grown up in the Dharma in a tradition where the teaching was very much uh, delivered spontaneously, like in, in the Thai forest tradition, none of the teachers ever talked with notes or scripts and they just spoke from their own personal experience. There's something also valuable that I've learned in uh, training and teaching um, the more structured practices of MBSR and MBCT about also not not becoming so my my default mode would to be become too lost in my internal experience and actually that we also need to have in mind a sense of actually what it is we're trying to communicate and who our audience are and how best to to convey that so that the two things need to be balanced and you know this is something in which we we don't get it right all the time and uh, that just that challenge of having to do that and, the, and to bring an interest to that and explore that is such a, a great thing for developing our practice. So in a way, I think, I think it's a real gift to be um, given the opportunity to teach or to be called to do that kind of work. It's like this, is, this is really keeps our, our practice pulling forward. You know, we, we have to do that in order to be embodied. So... Um, it's a very good question to just, you know, keep on asking ourselves all the time. And yeah. so, that's my addition. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, hmm. Like um, 
There's much that is similar for me, like uh, for Jaya and for Chris. I, like Jaya, I have come from a tradition that prides itself not to prepare and uh, not to use props. And uh, it's probably fair to say that it doesn't work for most people to, to do it that way. So people, people end up rambling and uh, maximizing the personal aspect of their experience and find it difficult to uh, deepen into a theme or a topic. And if it does work, it's brilliant. You know, if there are people who are gifted to have uh, both knowledge and contemplative depth and uh, a way with language, and then it produces far superior results than the best crafted lecture you read off a page. But um, for, <laughs> for those glorious few, <laughs> you have to put up with <laughs> A large amount of ramblers. <laughs> so, 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 so I have, uh, you know, growing up in a tradition, you you can't just follow along. If you're if you have my my deck of cards, you you need to go into a dissident mode and become oppositional and learn that way. So, <laughs> so I uh, I tried to be scripted for a time as a young monk, and I realized I was always losing my audience in being sticking to my project and to my theme, I just talked past the audience repeatedly because there's something of the external awareness that didn't <laughs> convey in. So I, I kept having these neat little packages, but then they didn't actually meet the people I had in front of me. So I had to give up this and uh, became... I was trying to look for a, a kind of an energy line, a theme. You know, if I want to talk about four Satipatthanas, I wish that all four to be there by the end of my talk. Yeah. So it's not good if I have just talked about one when I say, this is what we're doing, we're speaking about four, and then I get lost somewhere halfway into the second. That's not a good thing. So I try to have some structure but it's generally not scripted. And sometimes, to be honest with you, I I have an idea what I say and I come in here and I say something totally different. Like yesterday, I wanted to say something very different. Or guided meditations I are not scripted. I don't know what I say three minutes before I say it. Um, somehow that, I believe, works sometimes and sometimes it doesn't. Um, I keep experimenting. <laughs> Other questions? Thank you. Yeah. Okay. Um, I really appreciated the question um, about meditation um, on thoughts. Uh, I wasn't going to ask this question, but once I heard uh, it being discussed, I figured I have to have to ask. Um, so I've been actually thinking about the same thing yesterday. Is it really possible? to meditate on thoughts um, and remain with that awareness throughout a thought. Um, and it seemed when I was asking this question in my experience that I've only had a very brief taste of this and it's, it's, I can compare it to like hanging on a cliff with like one finger. Um, and it's, it's just such a slippery terrain. Um, but then I reached the conclusion that it must be possible because um, of like a lucid dream state when it seems like you can conti continue having awareness throughout um, a thought or an experience, whether it's visual or non-visual, non-visual being more difficult. Um, but I'm just wondering if you might think that it is similar to a lucid dream state when you're able to actually sustain awareness um, on a thought in, in a meditation. Do you have something? Yes, you know, the, 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 it is quite possible to be aware of a thought without being engrossed in that thought. Now, um, in, in, in my books, the, my capacity to be aware of a thought without being engrossed in the thought has something to do with what Chris described about internal grounding. Yeah. So if that thought has a context, 
uh, not a discursive context, but if that thought is a phenomenon in my experience, then part of that experience can be that I have uh, an emotion, that I have an embodied sense of my posture, my weight. It means that that thought has space around it to some degree. It means I am aware that that thought is a phenomena of experience. All thoughts, irrespective of their content, pop up from somewhere, I don't quite know where. They do something. Usually they want something from me. And I have the possibility to respond or not to respond. You know? I think of little people with rucksacks, okay? And um, sometimes you just let these people walk past and sometimes you just kind of go and look into their rucksacks and look into their rucksacks, yeah, and start doing this kind of thing. So. If you see these guys, just a line of folks with a rucksack walking along the horizon, you know, I can be sitting quite happily there, and you know, they're they're walking, they're walking past me, yeah. And um, sometimes one of them pulls me in, yeah, or uh, one looks particularly threatening or particularly attractive, and then you go and play with his rucksack, yeah. And usually you get into a little tussle of sorts or you, you start decking, his, you know, taking his stuff out and starting to play with this. But <laughs> the experience, you know, thought as a phenomena of, as a dimension of your experience, which there are universal categories in thought. They arise, they multiply, they display a sense of importance, yeah, they appeal, and if you don't respond to this, they disappear. Yeah. They don't belong to you, I cannot control them. None of them has, ye has ever made me happy. <laughs> yeah. uh, they can easily um, be followed by contrary thoughts, so sometimes people walk this direction and then <laughs> guys <laughs> walk this direction. Yeah. So, um, and there's a moment when you actually when you can hold this, usually when mindfulness is a certain fluidity, when you have versatility with attending to other aspects of your experience than thought, you can just kind of let them, you know, it's kind of like sitting in the train station and rather than looking at their handbags or their socks or their faces, you just see kind of, you have a pixelized version yeah, of your visual field and they just kind of flow through your visual field and you don't latch on to things. Yeah? Buddhist teaching speaks of nimitta, sort of that we have a latching on tendency. So nimitta is um, things we latch on to with our advertence and then things we latch on to with our perceptual apparatus and then things we latch on as triggers for emotions. So on all three layers we latch on to just little hallmarks of what we pick up. And if there's enough calmness and steadiness, then these hallmarks can just do what they do and I am not being triggered into immediately emoting with this one or so. Yeah. Maybe this. Hopefully this won't be an enormous question, but it might be. Um, I'm asking... Jaya does enormous questions. <laughs> so this is a question for Jaya. This question arose also in the group of people that I sit with my sangha. And so partly it's for myself and partly it's for them because we raised it with each other and everyone was like, maybe so. So um, the question shifts a little bit. So we've been talking about you know, watching thought or like letting them pass, not latching on. But then you've used this term, um, this is good to contemplate. And I know that another way of meditation is to specifically take concepts or questions as your focus to spark deeper awareness and insight about that content, and yet you want that to be embodied. So, how's that work? And yeah, that's my question. 
Well, I, w- I wasn't here yesterday afternoon, but I uh, for the, when you did your um, dyads and or triads or dyads that you did. But I understand that you were going to do a, a repeating question. Is that right? That you you sat together and you took a question and you just dropped that into consciousness. And the way that I understand that that exercise, this would be an example of you know how we might. Uh, deliberately contemplate a thought or a question, and was it was that different from uh, the experience of simply um, launching into an analysis of the question posed? And I wonder whether it, there there is something about um, taking a thought and dropping it into a quieter space in the mind, and actually allowing the the answers to emerge not so much from a um, you know, rational internal discussion, but to really listen to the resonance of the thought or the question. And that way we begin to actually explore the thought in a, in a more embodied way. And this is partly um, how I understand you know, um, a wise way to use wise reflection. So yes, of course, you know, there are some times when we, we, we want to pursue a, a question or reflect on a theme. So one of the advantages of actually having become more skilled at choosing when to stop on the th- step on the thought train or not is that we can actually make a conscious choice. Okay, this is something I'm going to ponder now. You know? And so that is a, this is also a valuable part of practice. And of course, yeah, we've referred to this as, as wise reflection. Um, but, but this particular way of doing it in, in this kind of resonating, reflective way, I think, is really useful. And then we also have there's some guidance as to what kind of thoughts are useful to, to reflect upon. So um, you know, the, the, the Buddha's definition of unwise reflection was uh, the sorts of thoughts that involve a lot of proliferation around uh, self and how I was in the past and how I will be in the future and so on, <laughs> you know. And then there are subjects for wise reflection, which tend to be the ones that are more present-centered. You know, what actually is this experience that's happening? What is this experience of me? Yeah. So it's partly the domain of the thoughts that we choose to to reflect on, and partly the way that we do it. Okay. Um, maybe this is the last one we I have an eye on the clock, so along the lines of what we were talking about, um I have a question about the uh the integrated experience of being let's say in the flow um somehow I got this feeling that when one uh, approaches nirvana or gets closer to there somehow that there's this um, this sense of flow where there's almost um, a um, no longer a sense of anything um, divided um, but when I think of um, uh, awareness uh, even of the body it seems that there's a bit of um, watching there's a slight divided consciousness. You can go into a state of um, of mindfulness, perhaps, where you um, uh, sense all of that, and it feels on another level. I can switch into a um, an integrated uh, flow gear while I'm aware of doing that. But I wonder whether uh, even that awareness uh, needs to dissolve into some. Uh, other level of uh, of um, immersed non-immersion immersion kind of state in order to um, you know at some level um, or or what. <laughs> I'll have a go, Jim. Uh, <laughs> The, the Buddha described uh, Nibbana and the process of awakening as unbinding and unfabricating. 
Uh, and we can see that uh, reactivity in its very obvious forms often creates a strong sense of self and other uh, and a sort of divided awareness, as, as you describe. But you may also have noticed over the last few days that, that that sense of sort of division, either between ourselves and other people or what's around us, or between that which is knowing and the breathing or the body, that waxes and wanes. You know, there are times when it feels more separate and other times when it feels like uh, the substantiality of experience, the separateness of things, just dissolves, at least to some extent. And the invitation is to get interested in what are the factors of mind that bind, that separate, that thicken, that compound experience, and what are the cultivations that quieten that, that dissolve separateness, that dissolve some of the dualities that we, uh, the very nature, for instance, of visual consciousness tends to prime us for a sense of subject-object, you know. Uh, and that, that waxes and wanes. And that in a, in a real way, what we're cultivating is that which unbinds, that which unfabricates, that which, which dissolves the sense of, of, of separateness or distance or uh, all the ways that concepts cut reality into separate objects. And, uh, you know, the Buddha spoke about Nibbana both as the um, final fruition of this path, but also spoke about it as a momentary experience, you know, where, where we can taste moments of Nibbana in you know, nibbana-ing, where, where uh, through a cultivation of presence of mind and kindness, through a, 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 a disidentification, not a dissociation, but a disidentification with thought, with body, even with that which is knowing our experience, awareness itself, we may notice, oh, these are factors that, that have a quality of unbinding and freeing the heart. Uh, and there's a real spectrum to explore here. You know, at one end, there's me having a tantrum where everything feels separate and obstructive. And at times over the last week, my guess is that we've all had times where things quieten, you know, where things quieten and we begin to explore, you know, areas of this spectrum, regions of this spectrum, where, where there is just less being fabricated, there's less being compounded. Uh, and that potential is one that is, is real for each of us. It's real for each of us. This is a possibility that it, the, the Buddha said, if, if this wasn't possible for you, I wouldn't teach it. I wouldn't teach it. So I, I hope in some way that speaks. I don't know if it does. <laughs> but others have anything to add on that? Great. I think this is a great note to end our little session. <laughs> Thank you. So we, we're left on the cliffhanger of Nibbana. <laughs> and uh, yeah, we don't, we don't have so much time for this portion of, of, of the session now, but um, really f wanting to express huge appreciation for all of you and your practice and the interest that you've brought, the way that you've... Uh, shown up in the groups, supported one another, that just the sincerity of your interest and your, um, your effort, your commitment to, to doing this and also to finding skillful ways of taking it out into the world is just uh, very beautiful to see. 
and I realise we haven't been able to you know, answer all your questions and there's some notes of appreciation that I've received from people and if I haven't responded to your note, please forgive me, but I really um, appreciate your appreciation. It's very touching to receive that, so thank you. And uh, if I've also, if I've said anything that has uh, caused you or done anything that's caused you harm inadvertently, I also ask you for forgiveness. You know, please take from this experience what's been useful and leave the rest here. <laughs> and uh, just to say, as, as um, Chris was speaking just now and uh, thinking about these 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 big questions of where is all this going and, and what is the end of the path brought to mind. People used to ask my teacher, Ajahn Sumedho, you know, people who were not monastics would come to him and say, is it possible to to be enlightened as a, as a lay person? And he would say, I don't know because I'm a monk. You have to, <laughs> you have to find out for yourself. Yeah. And that's what we all have to do with all of this. We have to find out ourselves. The Dharma is ahipasiko, come and see for yourself. Yeah. And uh, I'm always very moved when I think of a, a teaching from Nisargadatta, who was the great, uh, a great master of Advaita Vedanta in India in the last century. And he said to, to his students, um, if you practice what you've already understood with the utmost sincerity then the whole truth will be revealed to you. And this is, this is our place of purchase. This is what we trust. We, if, we, if you take whatever you've understood thus far and practice it with complete sincerity, the next step will reveal itself to you and the top of the mountain will become clear. And then you can come back and describe it to all of us. <laughs> So I really wish you well in this endeavour and uh, hope that our paths will cross again. Yeah, it's... Uh